It is good to be back with you this evening. A number of our members are traveling. Let's keep them in our prayers or otherwise uh, could not be with us tonight. If you would open your Bibles to 1 John 2. 1 John 2. We're going to notice the first five verses as a basis for our sermon tonight. 1 John 2. John writes, saying, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He saith, I know him and keepeth not his. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Have you ever heard someone say, I'd bet my life on it? I'd bet my life on it. What does that mean? Well, it means that the one who feels that way about a certain thing would gamble or wager or take a chance with his very life on something in which he has confidence. Now, we use that by way of illustration, never intending that uh, gambling is acceptable to the Lord, but it is a common phrase, one at least that I have heard a lot in my life. Now, there are not a whole lot of things I would say that about, that I would have that kind of confidence in. I would bet my life on it. But there are some things in which we can have that confidence. The word confident means full of conviction, having or showing assurance, to be assured of something. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, we can know something. Beyond the shadow of a doubt. Confidence is a trait that most would agree is helpful as we live in this life. We need to have some confidence, don't we, if we're going to be successful. And when we do have confidence, we have this sense of well-being. We have this sense of knowing that we can be successful and can accomplish the goals with which we have directed our paths. We need confidence. The same is true about the Christian's Confidence in eternal life. We ought to be able to have confidence. We ought to be able to to say, I would stake my life on Christ. I am so confident in our Lord that I would give my physical life to have eternal life in heaven. I believe it is sad when faithful Christians cannot say without doubt, I am saved. Without doubt, I know I'll be in heaven one day when this life is over. Of course, that kind of confidence is not based on a gamble. It's not based on a wager or a chance. That confidence is founded and based in God Almighty. Now, it isn't from a sense of arrogance or some sort of a feeling of spiritual superiority over another person that we can make that statement. I know that I know. 
I'm saved. It is simply having confidence in our salvation, having confidence in God that He will do what He said He would do. Faithful Christians know what God expects. And those who are faithful will do what He expects them to do. It was Paul who said this in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. through 8, He said, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. He said, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. He went on to say, I have finished my course. And he understood now there was a crown of life waiting on him. He said, not just for me, but for all those who love his appearing. Paul knew that he was saved. He had confidence in knowing that he was saved. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, what's going to happen after this life is over? Paul would say, I'm going to be taken by the hands of angels to the bosom of Abraham and I will be in paradise and I know that's where I'm going to be. We can know that we know. That's the title of the sermon tonight. Why was it that Paul was able to know that he knew salvation awaited him? He knew salvation awaited him for exactly the same reasons John said it awaits us today. John said, and hereby, we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. That's in the passage we just read. He went on to say, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous, 1 John 5, 3. We can know what He wants, and we can know that we can do it. And we can understand that what He's asked us to do is not beyond our ability to do it. We can know because we have been given His commandments. He loves us and He gave us all that we need to have in this world. John lays out for us the reasons that we can know we are saved in 1 John 2. I want us to notice tonight as we look at this, John first makes the point that we can know we have salvation because we have an advocate We have an advocate. And an advocate has a purpose. What's the purpose of an advocate? This term is a judicial term. When John was writing this, he had in mind a court setting. It means one who pleads the cause of another. Specifically, one who pleads the cause of another before a tribunal or a judicial court. In essence, an advocate is an attorney or a lawyer. They stand for the person who has engaged them in employment or who has acquired their help in the, in the civil world. That's what he is. And they take care of the problems or the processes that we endure when we go to court. Christ is the Christian's advocate. He stands beside us. He speaks for us. But why is it that Christ must be our advocate? There must be a reason Because John said in our passage that he is righteous. He's our advocate because he is a righteous man. He was a righteous being. He is God. He never sinned the whole time he lived upon this earth. And he can stand and advocate for us. An advocate in need of intercession on his own behalf is not able to stand before the judge. 
and take the part of the client standing there. Christ can accomplish that for us while no other person can. And it's because of what He did. Now, as Christians, we have a lot of intercessors, don't we? Anyone can be an intercessor. We intercess for each other before the very throne of God. We do that in prayer. We go to God on behalf of our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our family members. We go, on, go to God on behalf of our nation, our leaders, those who would like to cause us harm. We go and intercess on behalf of people we do not even know. In fact, the Holy Spirit Himself is one of our greatest intercessors. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, made the statement four times that the Holy Spirit is our intercessor. The writer of Hebrews plainly stated that the Holy Spirit is our intercessor. He goes before the throne of God on our behalf. Sometimes we we want to ask God for something and we need to plead for something and we just don't know really how to go about doing that. We know we need help. We know we need something. And the Holy Spirit intercesses on our behalf. But why is Christ our greatest intercessor and our advocate? Because He knows all about the human experience. Not that the Father doesn't know about that or that the Holy Spirit doesn't know about that. They're divine. They know all things. But it was Christ who took the form of man and came to earth and lived as a man. Endured everything that we can endure or even imagine enduring. We can't stand before the great judge of all mankind and say, you just don't understand. Because Christ's whole purpose was to come to be our advocate and our mediator. That's why He came. That was the whole reason for it. As we look at the the purpose of an advocate, man has a purpose as well. John talks about it in this exact same passage. Our purpose is that we sin not. That's why we're here. The great King Solomon said, the, the whole of man is to fear God and keep His commandments. John says basically the same thing, doesn't he? That we sin not. This part of John's letter answers the question that, questions that might be asked in chapter 1. We might say, how do we walk in the light? And what exactly are the conditions of forgiveness? He begins in this passage and he explains that we walk in the light when we do not live in sin. That we sin not is our purpose. That's how we walk in the light. However, if we do sin, and John's talking about the occasional sin, he's not talking about living in sin, deciding that we do not want to be faithful to God, making the poor choices of this life that cause us to be unfaithful. He's talking about the person, and the, the, the Christian who has dedicated himself to Christ, who's given himself to God, and he says, I'm going to live the life of a Christian. I'm going to walk in the light. But even at that, on occasion we slip up and we sin. And when we do that, our advocate, our mediator, our greatest intercessor is there for us. And He represents us before the judge of all men. We can know that we have salvation because God put into place a plan for us. We have an advocate with a purpose, and we have an advocate with a plan. 
He sent Jesus as our Savior, but we must accept His plan and abide in it. We can't come with our own plan. The people of this world has never been expected to devise a plan of salvation by which we might be saved. Now, several have attempted that over the the years that this earth has been in existence, about 6,000 now, but each one has failed because it is not possible for us to come with a plan of salvation on our own. But God made for certain that we had the information that we need in order to be able to access that plan. Paul taught the world where the source of our faith is founded, where the source of our knowledge of understanding that we can confidently say we are going to be in heaven. He told us where that source is. Paul said that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's an important statement. Sometimes we, we quote that verse or read that verse and we kind of run over it quickly because we've heard it so many times. We use that in our plan of salvation or God's plan of salvation as we repeat it to others, don't we? We must have faith. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But there's a lot more to it. Sometimes we move too quickly. There's no other source from which we can gain God's information. There's no other source from where we can learn to be confident in Him that we can know that we know we're saved. It has to come from the Bible. It has to come from His Word. And He's given that to us. Of course, if a person is faithful if He can clearly point out within the Scripture what God desires for us, it is wise and I think necessary to listen. But if that individual cannot point out and open the Bible to the book and the chapter and the verse wherein He can support the doctrine that He says God teaches, then I think it is wise and absolutely necessary to avoid that individual, to get away from that person and reject their doctrine. The second part of Christ's plan comes about after faith has grown in the heart and we decide that we want to follow after His commandments. We know that, is, uh, we know that as repentance, but repentance comes about by a very special way. Repentance is a very difficult aspect of gaining salvation. Repentance is a very difficult aspect of retaining salvation. What causes repentance to come about? Is it simply from a knowledge that God is who He said He was? Is it simply from the fact that He sent Christ to be our propitiation, to live among men and to be our sacrifice? Is that what brings about repentance? No, that's not it, is it? Does that have a part to play in it? Of course it does. But Paul plainly told us, he said, Godly sorrow leadeth to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Once faith has been cultivated in the heart, godly sorrow comes about if we accept that faith and we understand that living any other way is detrimental and hurts God. Then of course we make the good confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Romans 10.10 And continuing to live that confession as long as we abide on this earth. Immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins is God's requirement. It's not man's requirement. It's Jesus who said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, 16. Some man didn't come up with that phrase. Some man didn't 
come with that plan of salvation. That's God's works. That is God's plan. God gave us an advocate, He gave us a purpose, and He gave us a plan. Of course, faithful living is the final step in the plan of salvation, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. There's no such thing as a once saved, always saved. Paul's told those in Galatia that if you try to add to the Word of God and you want to institute these defunct religious rites that are found in the law of Moses, if you're going to be bound by part of the law, you're bound to do the whole law. And if that's what you do, then you are fallen from grace. Galatians 5 verse 4. But there's a second reason that we can know that we know we have salvation. And that is because we have been given atonement for sin. We've been given an advocate. But that advocate is our atonement. And what is that? It's Christ's ransom. Our atonement is the ransom that we have in Christ. Why? John said He's our propitiation for sin. He is the appropriate sacrifice. He is the only sacrifice of that kind. He is the only one that can be that sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews explained to us, Hebrews 10 verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats will take away sin. Mankind needed a sacrifice that could eliminate sin from their lives. Not just roll it ahead for a year to be dealt with next year. That doesn't save one from sin. Of course, under that law that was in place at that time, that was necessary to do that. But once Christ died on the cross, it was at that point that His blood forgave those who were faithful under the Old Testament laws. He's our ransom because He paid a debt that we could not pay. We sing a song that says that, don't we? He paid a debt that I could not pay. He renders the Father favorable toward us. He brings us back into fellowship with Him. He makes it so that we might stand before the judgment seat with confidence that God is approving of us. Paul said, But we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received atonement. Romans 5 verse 11. And we can be at peace with the Lord. Without the atonement, we can't have that. Without the ransom, it's not possible. But if we're going to take advantage of the atonement, we're going to access the ransom, we have to meet the requirements. And they're easy. Paul declared this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 We can understand that Eternal life is without doubt a gift, freely given to those who would accept it, but that gift comes with conditions, doesn't it? God, the giver, is allowed to attach whatever to that free gift that He wants to. This entire section of John's letter, beginning in 1 John 1, verse 5, all the way through 2 John, or 1 John chapter 2, is a closely knit, well-ordered argument designed to reveal the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. John goes out of his way to very clearly explain exactly how we have those blessings made available to us through Jesus. Of course, being inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says there's no, no darkness in God because God is light. We can't say that 
we walk in the light of God if we live in darkness. We can't say that we're going to live a life in the darkness and yet have a relationship and a fellowship with God. He says you can't do that because there's no darkness in God. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God. But we not only have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another. The question was posed to me, what do we do if someone has their fellowship withdrawn at another congregation and they come to our congregation? Well, we have to do our due, our, our due diligence when uh, anyone wants to place member membership amongst the Lord's people here or anywhere. We have to do, the congregation has to do their due diligence. We have to determine if they're faithful or not. We don't send out private investigators. We take that person at his or her word. But what if it comes to light that that individual is out of fellowship with God and because of that, they have been withdrawn from from another congregation? What do we do? Well, we can't offer our own fellowship to someone who is not in fellowship with God. See, that's the main thing, isn't it? Is that individual in fellowship with God? If they are, then we're in fellowship with them. That's pretty simple, isn't it? The blood of Jesus, if we're walking in the light, John says, continually cleanses us. That's the requirement. We have to walk in the light. The truth is, if if we acknowledge our sins, we can walk in the light. That's whether we've obeyed the gospel or not, before or after, right? If we acknowledge our sins prior to becoming a Christian, we do that through the plan of salvation. Once we become a Christian and we make mistakes in this life, we acknowledge that sin before God and we continue to walk in the light. We also learn Christ is not only our propitiation, not just the propitiation for those who have given themselves to Him, but John said to the world, to all who would give themselves, if they will but accept it. He is made available to all men. All people, the whole creation. But we have to take advantage of the greatest opportunity ever offered to the world if we're going to allow Him to be our atonement. If He's going to be our advocate and our atonement, we have to make sure, and this is our final point, that we have allegiance to Him. We can know that we know we're saved if we have allegiance to God. How can one be assured that he or she is saved? By being faithful. By simply keeping the commandments of God. 1 John 2, verse 3. We can be confident in gaining the eternal abode and knowing that we know Him if we keep His will. There's never going to be a pop quiz. There's not going to be a, a test that we weren't aware of. I can remember in school throughout my academic career, In whatever school I was in, one of the most feared things was the dreaded pop quiz, wasn't it? Because the teacher knew we had studied for that. That's why he gave the pop quiz, right? It was a punishment, really, is what it was. I can remember sitting in school, in the Memphis School of Preaching, and thinking to myself as I was offering up a prayer before class started, please do not come in and take out a blank sheet of paper. I knew that was not going to be good. But see, that's not how it is when we stand before the judge. He's not going to say, take out a blank sheet of paper. I know you haven't studied for the test. Now I'm going to see if you're going to be allowed entrance into heaven. We know on the front end 
what we need to do. And we have allegiance to Him when we do those things. The word keep in keep His will is a present subjunctive verb. It indicates a continuous action. We might say if we continue to keep His commandments, if we keep on keeping His commandments. It's not a one-time thing, right? That's the whole premise behind uh, the idea of knowing that we know. Keeping His commandments. We don't have to go about our lives wondering if we're saved or if we're not. We simply have to keep His commandments and we are assured of salvation. We can be confident and we can always be looking forward to meeting with those loved ones who have gone on before us. If we're going to be faithful in our allegiance, we must never forget about God. That's kind of easy to do, isn't it? It must be. As we look through the history of man and we read the biblical record, that was a trademark of the nation of Israel. They would forget God. They would go off into some kind of idolatry and they would forget about God. When we read the book of Judges, and there arose another generation who knew not God. After Joshua and the elders of the nation at that time, those great men, after they had died, that next generation didn't even know God. They didn't know God. They certainly didn't keep His commandments. We cannot forget God. Keepeth His word in verse 5 of our passage is the same as keep His commandments in verse 3. We have to keep on keeping His Word. The words in Him indicate an intimate relationship, doesn't it? We're in Him. That means we have a very personal relationship with Him. Isn't Christianity a personal relationship with our Lord? Absolutely it is. If we're going to know God and be in Him, we have to keep His commandments. That's a requirement. And we never forget what He's done for us. That ought to help us to keep in Him, to maintain, to stay where we ought to be. After all, He did send His only begotten Son to die in our stead so we wouldn't have to give up our lives. The fruit that is produced in this life, in the life of a Christian, is the result of the love that has been shown to us and the love that we show to God. Christ said this, John 15, 4-5. He said, Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. He said, I am the vine and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. It's useless for one to claim a love for God if he refuses to keep his commandments. John called that man a liar. I think that's the acid test, isn't it, for our love of God? That's the pop quiz, except we've been given the answers. I just read in the news the other day, somewhere up in Kentucky, two young men in an engineering program at one of the universities got caught breaking into one of the professor's offices. They'd gotten into the air duct system, and they were trying to steal a test. It just so happened the professor had come back after leaving for just a few moments and caught them in there. So they were trying to get the answers to the test. But we've been given the answers. We've been given the requirements. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. 
I think it is uncomfortable to live any aspect of our life without confidence. In our social lives, doesn't it make us feel awkward to be around others if we are lacking confidence? Don't we often fear of perhaps saying the wrong thing or or not being able to fit in like we'd like to? Whatever the case, a lack of confidence is extremely uncomfortable. It's also uncomfortable to live our lives without the confidence of knowing that we are saved. But we don't have to live that way. We've been told what to do. If we follow His commandments, we can know that we know Him. And how comforting that is. We can be assured of salvation when we enter eternity following this life. There can't be a greater feeling in the world than to know that God has simply told us what to do and that we can do it. We can know that we know. But for that to happen, we must know the Advocate. We must know of His atonement. And we must maintain our allegiance to Him. If you haven't obeyed the Gospel... We don't really know the Advocate. We're not in connection with the Atonement, and we have no allegiance to Him. But that can all be changed. We talked how to do that. We mentioned it in our sermon about faith and repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living. And we talked about coming back to Him if perhaps we've gone astray, we've stepped out of the light. See, we can come back into contact with our Advocate. We can come back into contact with that atonement, the blood of Christ, and we can maintain our allegiance. We can, we can reaffirm that if that's necessary, if we've been unfaithful. If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation, don't leave without being in a covenant relationship with God. That's not necessary. We can know that we know. Do that as we stand and as we sing.